We are in James chapter 5 today, verse 12. Not a lot of announcements, and uh, I owe you guys a shorter service, so we'll see if we can get that done today. <laughs> oh, you don't remember that? Oh, good. Never mind. We'll go regular length, which is long. Uh, great to see you guys, um, and uh, excited to get into the word with you all. Um, let's stand together today and read James chapter 5, verse 12 together. One verse, hope your legs don't tremble on you. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Lord God, as we come to your word, um, Lord, we just uh, hear from James today as he quotes his brother Jesus uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, that uh, we're to be men and women of our word. Uh, Lord, we just realize how often we, uh, we're in a sense liars, Lord. And, and when we bind you to our, our flippant lips, God, um, Lord, we, just, we disgrace you, we dishonor you, and we don't represent transformed lives well in that. And and Lord, there's, there's much to be said concerning um, this today and where we're at as a church. And, and, uh, and so we just want to humble ourselves before your word, God. We want to um, be conformed by your word. We want to draw out of the word today uh, rather than pressing in our culture and our ideas uh, upon you, God. Uh, and so Lord, would you correct us where correction is needed uh, and that's always a good thing. Um, and Lord, would you, would you educate us where education is needed? But Lord, above it all, change our hearts, Lord, uh, that we could um, follow you and be like you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. As we read this verse concerning speaking in a letter by James, the half-brother of Jesus, the context here is the proper use of the tongue, even when trials are tempting you to fall away. This is probably the sixth big reference that James uses towards the human tongue, towards our voices, towards the words that come out. Uh, you know, James chapter 1 verse 26 tells us that if we say we are religious people and yet we don't bridle our tongue, we're deceiving ourselves. And so it is one test of religion, not the only test, but one way you can know if somebody truly believes in the Lord Jesus is what is their speech like? Are they someone who has no control of their tongue? Uh, throughout the scripture, you see that uh, what comes out of our mouth and what we speak forth has its source from a spring, the spring of our heart. And those of us that are in Christ Jesus and have been given a new heart by the Holy Spirit and the gospel has done a transforming work in us, uh, that spring will be fresh water coming out of our heart. Words of encouragement, words of comfort, words of edification and exhortation towards men, good things. Uh, but those who still have bitterness in their heart, James tells us that, that a, a bitter spring comes out of our mouth, slandering, gossiping being critical, slamming people, doing one another down, as a Scottish preacher said. Uh, that'll be something that's regularly coming out of our mouth. And so James is all about the right use 
of the tongue. And in this case, when we're in the midst of trials, temptations, struggles, uh, we need proper use of the tongue all the more. Amen? Well, Warren Wearsby, an incredible Bible expositor, writes, The exhortation seems to be out of place here. For what does speaking oaths have to do with the problem of suffering? If you have ever suffered, you know the answer. It is easy to say things you do not mean and even make bargains with God when you are going through difficulties. We see that to be truthful in Peter's life, don't we? At the end of Jesus' life here on earth, when Peter is there in Caiaphas's courtyard warming himself by the fire and someone accuses him to be a disciple of Jesus. In fact, there's three different accusations. You're surely you're a disciple of Jesus. You're a Galilean and your speech betrays you. And finally, after all this pressure and he's realizing my life is on the line here, uh, what does he do? He curses and he swears to God that he doesn't know Jesus. And one of the gospels actually says at that moment, a rooster crows and Jesus looks over and Peter looks over and they both look at each other at that final denial as Jesus' prophecy came true. Uh, Jameson Fawcett and, and Brown, one of my favorite commentaries, writes, Do not use oaths in your everyday conversation, but let a simple affirmative or denial be deemed enough to establish your word. As if we're talking on walkie-talkies and we've got to keep it simple. That's an affirmative. <laughs> I guess the other one would be negative, right? That's a negative. Let's just do that with each other. Yeses being yeses and noes being noes. Now, this section of scripture, if you've been part of Calvary long, you know we just walk through the scriptures every week, verse by verse, when we expound the text as we come to it. It's the method that we've chosen to rightly divide the word of truth and plow straight lines through it. Uh, That might even be topical sometimes. We might choose a topic that we see the felt need that we need to bring the word of God to, but we'll never just pick and choose text. We always want to go to the word and let the word speak concerning that subject. And we'll go verse by verse through a text in that case as well. You guys know that we've been going through James, right? Just how many months has it been, Kevin? Like 10 years? Yeah, I don't know, it's probably been six months that we've been in the book of James, right? Going through the scriptures, and here we are, as the Lord would have it, in James chapter 5, verse 12. The verse that we come to in our expository preaching, and going verse by verse through the scripture, has, been, has come to us at a wonderful time today. As in our church history, here we are, and today is the day that all of the first round of forms for covenant membership have come in. The group of people that are saying, I identify with this local body. I call this my home church. I'm all in. I'm behind the vision and the mission that we see in the New Testament that this church is about, and I want to be a part of it. This is my faith family, and they've turned in their forms today, and you can still turn them in today uh, where you're just saying, this is, this is it. I want to be a part of what God is doing here, and um, this has been a, a, a work in the making for the last two years. Uh, In early 2013, we spent 14 weeks in a series called His Church, where we had our passion for the church rekindled, or perhaps kindled, for the very first time. 
After 14 weeks of ecclesiology and studying God's heart for his New Testament church, we continued going through the scriptures. We were in Romans before this, and we went into 1 Corinthians. And we spent 36 weeks in the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians. Some of you got gray hair during that time. Some of you got bags under your eyes. But you're still here. You're alive. Praise God. Some of you have come less since that time. And it's good to have you back. Uh, But during those 36 weeks, we saw all of the principles of the church lived out in the Corinthian local church. So everything we studied for 14 weeks, it was so incredible to then go and look at the local church in Corinth in the first century and see every one of these doctrinal principles and theological principles lived out in a local church context, displayed, practiced, and affirmed by the Apostle Paul. So this led us then to six weeks of reviewing all of these affirmations in what we called the This Church series, where we brought it home. We brought it home to what we are about, what God has for us at this local body at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. And we know from our studies that God has saved us out of darkness to be worshipers of him, to proclaim his praises, the praises of him who saved us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's called us to be a family, friends together, servants of one another, ministers of the Lord, generous givers with our time, resources, and finances. He's called us to be holy, to be taken care of and protected and tended by leadership, and to proclaim and herald all of this to others who've never heard the good news of the gospel. We really dove in to the doctrine of the church in the last two, three years. As one man wrote, the doctrine of the church is of the utmost importance. It is the most visible part of our Christian theology, and it is vitally connected with every other part. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Christ's work is the church's foundation. Christ's work will continue in the church The fullness of the mystery of God in redemption is disclosed among his people. The church arises only from the good news of the gospel. And a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. We can show our depths of understanding of the gospel by our involvement in a local church and local body life. And it's a gross immaturity on our part. If we think we can maintain growth as Christians apart from life together with the people of God in a local church. You know from these series that we do not dismiss the beauty and the involvement in the universal church as well. And we've taught on that and we're a part of the universal church and ministries around the world even today. But here's a local body. We want to know what does God have for us here at Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon in 2015. Over these weeks, we focused on nine main points. First of all, whose church is this anyways? It's Jesus' church, amen? He says in Caesarea Philippi, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He calls it his own, it's mine. And we looked at how he purchased this church with his own precious blood. We looked at how we've been saved, not to be individuals who isolate ourselves, but we've been saved into a community. And we looked at all of the communal metaphors in the scripture, like we are sheep of a flock. 
We are stones of a temple all put together, right? We are all uh, um, branches in the vineyard of which Jesus is the branch. We are all parts of a body that Jesus is the head. We've been saved not to be off over by ourselves. Hey, there's a pinky on the floor. That is not useful and quite disgusting. We are called to be put together under the headship of the Lord Jesus. And in that community, we're to have intentional consideration of one another. We're to think about each other, be praying for each other during the week, talking to each other, reaching out to each other, knowing where we're at in life with one another so we can stir one another on towards love and good works. In that same passage that says that in Hebrews chapter 10, it goes right on from there to say that we are to be part of the regular gathering together of a local body life. In fact, we're to not neglect that. We're to not neglect the coming of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, Hebrews 10.26 says, but we're to get together all the more as we see the day approaching. How interesting that even back in the day where people were being slaughtered from being Christians and from being part of a church, they were being ostracized from communities and kicked out of family wills that Peter said, or that Paul said, or whoever it was, whoever authored Hebrews, nobody knows really. We have our opinions. But it was then that the author said, it doesn't matter. There is no reason to neglect body life. So don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together. And so we learn from that. And by studying the model of the early church, that we are to gather together regularly for the purpose of being in the apostles' doctrine, for communion, for fellowship, for sharing with one another, and for the breaking of bread. All right? We're to, as the literal translation says, continue assiduously and give ourselves towards being together. Is that something that marks your life, Christian? That you would say, as a Christian, you gather regularly with the local body? You give yourself assiduously to a local church? Is that something that marks your life? It's something that God has been calling us towards as a church. We also looked at, as a Christian, we've been given a gift, perhaps more gifts, spiritual gifts from God. These gifts are to display Christ to a dying world and to build up this church and the universal church. They're to be lived out and used and stewarded within body life. We're to steward those spiritual gifts. And not only the gifts, but we're to steward our resources. We're to be generous givers with our time. Is not time a resource? And how many of us are stingy with our time? We're to be generous with our time for one another, for the kingdom. We're to be generous givers of our finances, of our resources. You know, God's doing that here. Jesus essentially says that our giving is the barometer of our heart. And you know what? Two weeks ago, we took an offering for the suffering people of Nepal that we have close personal relationships with. And in one Sunday, this church gave $20,000 towards the aid in Nepal. You guys, praise God. Is that not a picture of the Holy Spirit working in our midst? We don't even have 20. We don't really know where it came from, actually. <laughs> like, well, I guess, you know, you do the math. I don't know. Erica did it actually on a calculator. So <laughs> was it truthful, Erica? What do you think? Okay. I don't know decimal points, so it might have been $19.50. I don't know. But uh, nearly $20,000 in one set. You know what that says? The barometer of our hearts at this church is hot. It's hot, praise God. So wonderful that in this God, in this church, God is working generous giving of our resources, of our time, 
Um, you know, one of the brothers in the church just had someone run into his fence, just drive across his yard and drive through his fence in the middle of the day and just talking to him like, man, let's build that fence together. Let's get brothers from the body. Let's go and let's serve you, man. We want to serve you. Let's go pick rocks out of your field and on your farm. Let's, you know, let's counsel your marriage. Just, I want to give you of my time because it's valuable. It's like money and I want to be generous with it. We saw in our series that God has appointed leaders that are qualified according to biblical qualifications. Uh, they've been appointed by the Holy Spirit. They're called pastors or shepherds or elders or overseers. It's a word that's used interchangeably for the function that they provide. And God has appointed those by the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 20 says. They're not to be tyrannical dictators as leaders, but they're to follow Jesus' example of servant leadership. But we also see that they are to rule the body. And that's a word that's a biblical word. But that rulership isn't a rod of iron. Get the hook and, you know, it's none of that. It's leading by example. It's leading by laying down our lives and pouring ourselves as drink offerings out on the sacrifice and service of your faith, Paul says. But wherever there are leaders, there's also the implications that there are to be people who are submissive to the leaders that God has placed in authority. There's also discipline in our discipleship of one another. That as Christians, we're to give ourselves to discipline. If there's something going on in my life that's counter to the scripture, in my discipleship, I want you to come tell me. And that happens on a very small scale in my discipleship. You know, discipline and discipleship has that same root word of being a follower and, and underneath a teacher. And even me as a pastor, I'm not above that. I need discipline and correction. And people like you and the elders, they speak into my life. I've given myself over to that. Okay? It's not something to be feared. It's something that Hebrews chapter 12 says, if God loves you, he's going to discipline you. Which one of us has had fathers that corrected us to seem best and it yielded the peaceable fruits of righteousness to us? It's something that God desires for us. In our, you know, and it can be just little things like just exhorting one another. That's what we desire, just exhorting in our discipleship together. You know, man, you really shouldn't, you know, use that gesture when you're driving by that individual on the highway. You know, that doesn't represent Christ. You might either remove the Christian fish from the back of your car or stop doing that, one or the other. You know, we need to be speaking into each other's life. These days. I heard how you were talking to your wife, man, and that is not Christ's representation of love for the church. That's, that is just not a good example to him, uh, to your wife of Jesus. You know, just speaking into each other's lives like that. And if it comes out to your brother never hearing you, never hearing, never repenting, then it comes to some of those harder things we read of in Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Tough stuff, but church discipline, uh, the Lord works out in the church to gain the erring brother. It's something that we practice and we not only make ourselves available for in my life, I invite correction into my life, but I'm going to be a part of reaching out to you and helping you in your life to walk the straight and narrow. We studied the mission that God has for his local church to be a part of the Great Commission. We studied the, the beliefs that a church should hold to, the correct doctrine of the church, and that right belief will lead us to right action. Each week, we studied how God's heart for his church and our American culture are at odds. In fact, in those nine things I was just talking to you about, I guarantee that almost every one of us balked at one of them. You're telling me I'm supposed to have a leader in my life? I'm the leader of my life. Been there. Said it before. You know, you're telling me that I'm to be disciplined? I'm a man. I haven't gotten a spanking in like five years, you know. Okay, whatever. 
I don't know. I don't do math well. But anyways, you know, we balk at this, don't we? Our culture tells us otherwise in almost every one of these areas. And if our culture isn't telling us otherwise, our individualistic sinful nature is telling us otherwise. And so in all of this studying, the Lord has led us in direction as a church in ways that it all has almost funneled together from the church series, studying ecclesiology, looking at 1 Corinthians, God's leading in his faithfulness. He's brought us through prayer and fasting to develop what we have called our vision statement as a church. As we study the ecclesiology or the study of the church, we realize what God wants us to be about as a local church. And so we drafted our vision statement as a church. You know, 14 years of being a church, people would come and say, what's your vision here? And we're like, um, just the rapture's going to happen sometime, so we can't wait for it. You know, it's like, okay, that's a good thing. It's just not the only thing, right? What is your mission as a church? What justifies you, Calvary Chapel, as being here as a local body? So we drafted our vision statement, and there it is on the back wall. If you don't have it memorized yet, you can, it's okay to turn around and look at it. Go ahead. Go turn around. Look at it. No one's looking at it. Turn around and look at it. Okay. That's awkward. Easy's like, are these people looking at me back here? Yes, we are. It says, we exist to make disciples in our city and of all nations who are sent out to proclaim and embody the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. This is what we believe the New Testament has for us as a local church to be about making disciples locally, regionally, and globally. And as we raise up those disciples and teach them all the things the Lord has commanded, then we send them out and then we raise up more and send them out, raise up more and send them out. In fact, while we were drafting this vision statement in the meeting, we were at my house, the Lord fell on us in that midst and he said, there is someone at this table who I'm calling to be sent out from Calvary Chapel of Crook County and go pastor Calvary Chapel of Lapine. It was an amazingly holy moment. Just all of us elders were looking around like, the Lord is here and he's calling us to that. I had to take my little wiener dog out to, you know, to do what they do. And as I'm standing outside, all the other elders are in there. I'm out there in the Lord. I'm looking at all the cars in my driveway and stuff. And I'm just like, this is an epic moment. This is like a biblical moment. Like God is calling. And even my name was on the, on the table like, one of us here, we don't know who, I offer my life as a blank check. If I'm to, to leave this position here and go and help make disciples in Lapine, Lord, here I am, send me. And we fasted as elders and we prayed. And within that week, the Lord said, Chad, I've called you for the work of the ministry. You're going out to Lapine. And there were about three huge doors that God would have had to open in his family, in the other church, in another church that's been a part of this other church. And then, uh, what was the other one? That's four, but I know there's another one in there. Anyways, his family. I said, having a head? Oh, his house. Yeah, his house and how it would work out with the owning of his house. Okay, four big things. And to watch within about a month's time, every one of those doors open up to validate what the Holy Spirit had spoken to us. And today, guess where he's at preaching right now? Calvary Chapel of Lapine. And so we say, you know what? This is our vision. None of us is safe. We have blank check lives. We make disciples and we send disciples out to preach the gospel locally, regionally, and globally. And so when you have a vision statement like that, there also needs to come with it a mission statement. This is how are we going to do that? How are we going to facilitate a vision statement? And so we wrote our mission statement. Let me read it to you. We don't have it painted anywhere because it's kind of long and there were no walls big enough. 
Well, let me read it. As redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, the members of Calvary Chapel of Crook County regularly gather under the authoritative Christ-centered word and in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may purposefully love God and each other while boldly evangelizing the world as the truth of the gospel defines who we are and how we live. Essentially, when we gave our mission statement, we went through the book of Acts in one morning here at the church. And we said, how did the early church do this? And then we wrote how the early church did it in three sentences or less. In all of that, the Lord was moving us and moving us and moving us as a church through prayer, through fasting, through discussions, through wrestling with one another, not real wrestling, but debating with one another and trying to figure things out. And in the midst of the debates, we all were like-minded in it. We were all just like, oh, I'm just being the devil's advocate here. What about this? And let's talk that through. Let's talk this through. And the Lord brought us to a vision, a vision for this church that as I was rolling this out to you from the pulpit, it was, it was as if I was standing there with you as like a commanding officer of an army unit. And this army unit had just been freshly recruited and had begun boot camp. And as the commanding officer, I was telling you reasons that you were going through all of this training. It was because there was an enormous war raging and you were all being trained up to be sent into battle. You would need to know that you were going to have to sacrifice your lives, time with families for this cause. You'll need to know to use, how your, know to use how your weapon and to be tactical with it. You'll need to know that the man next to you in uniform is all in and that you would be trusting him with your life. You would need to know your commanding officers and your orders and your role within your unit. That it would be a sacrifice that would be great, but that the reward would be awesome. It was a path that the Lord had been leading on. There was something on the table of discussion for nearly three years, and month after month after month, year had gone on. We'd understood its urgency, the urgency and the necessity of church membership here at Calvary Chapel, membership that we call covenant membership. We spent hours upon hours, sometimes from 6.30 at night to 1 in the morning, Thursday after Thursday after Thursday, Sunday at 6 a.m. till 8.30, running in here before service, talking and discussing and praying and fasting, looking at opposite sides and other arguments that could be used, fasting and holding this direction of membership with open hands before the Lord, saying, Lord, if this is not of you, take it from us, remove the burden from our hearts, if we're out of step with you. As we went through the scriptures as elders and, through the, and as, the, as a church, we saw its methodology laid out in scripture. As we looked at the theology of the church over a year and a half, each aspect of ecclesiology studying the church begged for church membership. As we, as we visited other churches who'd gone this direction, we saw the effective power of membership. And as we visited churches that did not have membership, we saw the detrimental effects of its lack. And so in light of the gospel, in light of God's overall plan and design for the church, in light of the vision that God has given his New Testament local church, this was the step that God was calling us to take as a local body. Covenant membership. Birth out of love 
for the church body and its individual members that we hope will experience the fullness of joy that's found in the presence of the Lord. The main purpose of covenant membership was, first of all, to clarify biblical obligations and expectations for the elders. What was to be expected of your guys' pastors from the New Testament? And also each individual members, including the elders, here at this church. We wrestled about what to call it. Should we call it membership? Should we call it enrollment program? Should we? I don't know. You know? And as we studied and studied and gleaned from other churches, we found that covenant was a biblical term that rightly fit what, we, what the vision we had was for this church. A covenant is generally defined as a written agreement or promise, usually under some kind of seal between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some kind of action. Some action was behind it. Why would you do this? Because there's some action that's going to take place. Within the scriptures, we saw a few different examples of covenant. Some of them were between God and man, where God has bound himself to fulfill the oath on both sides of the agreement. Other covenants were only between men, like a marriage covenant, where both sides were reciprocally bound to adhere to the obligation. The vision behind covenant membership essentially was that it was an agreement that everybody who called this church home was saying, I am in. I am in this with you. We are in this together. We are arm in arm about what God has us be about. I'm in with you. You're in with me. I'm willing to be admonished. I'm in and I'm willing to lay down my life with you and for you. In this battle analogy that God had given us, we had all been dropped into enemy territory. We we're in the trenches and the foxholes together. And we know that the guy next to us that we're relying upon is in. I can trust this person who's next to me. I'm willing to help others who've laid down their lives. I'm showing you my commitment level. One other Calvary Chapel down in California was going through this the same time we were. And I heard this phrase from one of the pastors there where he says, you know, this covenant membership, it's really saying, I'm done with the dating period with you and I'm ready to get married. I've dated this church long enough. I know what you guys are about. I'm not going to flirt with you anymore. I catch your vision. I catch the direction. I know that you're preaching truth and let's go. God's got a plan and a direction for us. I'm ready to get married. Does not marriage open itself up to some kind of abuse? to some kind of problems, to some, I mean, how many marriages do we know where it wasn't just hunky-dory all the time? And do you tell your sister when she gets engaged, run away from marriage as fast as you can. You don't even know the tyrannical leader that that guy's going to be. You know, we know that there's going to be struggles. We know we're going to fail each other. We're going to bum one another out. But it's a covenant that's been designed by the Lord for a purpose of glorifying the Lord. It's saying in the covenant membership, I want you to know I consider myself to be part of this faith family. It's saying I believe in the truth of the doctrine laid out in scripture and I'll walk in submission to the leaders here. I welcome the correction from the Lord, from everyone here. I'm laying down my selfish worldly rights and I will now walk in submission to each one of you. If I stray, I want you and the shepherds to come after me. If I'm hurting or in need, I expect you to come tend me as I will tend you. I will use my spiritual gifts to edify this church. I will give benevolently of my resources for the work of the ministry that happens here and the needs of the saints here. 
This is my church. I am committed. I'm a member of this body. I'm a sheep of this flock. This is my faith family. It's my faith family. And so when we come to the vision given by the church regarding commitment to one another and sealing the understanding of our agreement with a signature, we ask, what does the Bible say about that? Well, we go to the Bible concordance, right? On our computer or on our shelf. We scan the scriptures and we find one of the first verses that pops up is a familiar one to us. Coming from the lips of Jesus himself, quoted today in James 5, verses, verse 12. A common concern that people have with covenant membership is that they feel they'd be walking in direct disobedience to Christ Jesus as he so clearly forbids taking of vows and the making of promises. James, the half-brother of Jesus, really quotes today from Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for, God, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king." Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil ones. Or the evil one. There's only one. So reading these verses raises a lot of questions. So it's helpful to refer back to our Bible interpretation rules, or our hermeneutical principles of interpretation. Some of you never got to go to Bible college, so I want to take you to Bible college today. How does that sound? We'll do something else then. Um, just kidding. So roll up your sleeves right now, okay? Get ready to sweat just a little bit. Hope you wore your work boots to church today. We're in Prineville. You probably did. And let's do a little bit of understanding, okay? Hermeneutics, okay? Don't let it, you know... Fry your brain, okay? Hermeneutics is simply the science and the art of interpreting the Bible, okay? It's how do we know if we're understanding the Bible correctly? In hermeneutics, we set forth methods and principles and techniques that are necessary to interpret the biblical text. The approach to Bible study that governs our methodology is referred to as literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to Scripture. It's okay, you don't have to remember that. I just wanted you to know that's our approach, okay? You have this literal approach to Scripture, or this immediate approach to Scripture, where we simply are reading James 5.12, or we're reading Matthew 5.33, and we ask, what do the surrounding passages speak to regarding this? Okay, so this might be the paragraph that it's in, the chapter that it's in, the book that it's in, okay? And then we go to the historical, okay? The historical approach. Our studying of the Bible seeks to answer, what did this mean back then when Jesus was saying it or when James was saying it? We want to know that first. Then we ask ourselves, okay, in light of what Jesus was trying to get across there, what does it mean to me today in 2015, Prineville? How is it applicable to my life? Then we move to the grammatical approach. Those of you that are English teachers, you like 
grammar and vocabulary and all that stuff that I'm really good at, um, you'll love this part of Bible study, okay? Because the Bible is written in human language, okay? Not in angel language and not in the Omega Code, you know? It was written in human languages. But it can be rightly understood when these meanings of words are known and looking at definitions of words and tenses of words and the relationship of words to one another in their sentences and in their paragraphs. The grammatical approach. Then we have the contextual approach where we look at cultural context of what's being said and biblical context of what's being said. When you learn how to study the Bible, you've got to remember this famous phrase, context is king, okay? Context is king. When we understand our Bible properly or we want to understand it properly, it requires that we clear our minds of all of our ideas, all of our opinions, all of systems of our own day, and attempt to put ourselves into the times and surroundings of the apostles and prophets that wrote the text, okay? So when we read, we got to like step back from Fox News, we got to step back from CNN, we got to step back from that rally we were at last week. We got to step back from our home life that we were raised in. But we got to just simply come bare before the Lord and his word and read it without any hidden agendas, okay? The context in which the passage was written influences how it's to be understood by us today. The context where a verse has verses before it and after it, right there immediately, as well as the paragraph, the chapter, and then even the dispensation that it was written in, that is the dealing that God had with men at that time in human history. What does this verse have to do with the context of the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? What was the historical and cultural environment of the time that it was written? Guys, when we ask those questions of a text, we do what's called exegesis, okay? Everyone say that, exegesis. Has nothing to do with Jesus per se, it's exegesis, okay? E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, -E -E okay? Where we exegete the text, okay? It is the method of interpretation that we're able to take in the process where we pull out truth from the text of scripture, we learn and we grow from the ideas that we're reading of, we let the Bible shape our ideas. We let the Bible shape our belief. We let the Bible shape our lifestyle, okay? But something that we've seen all throughout history and that we totally see today is everybody bringing their Democratic background, their Republican background, their American background, or I'm from Europe, you know, um, I've, I've got a gay sister, or I've got a, a gay pastor from the past, or I've got, you know, this or that or what, I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm from a divorced home, or, you know, we homeschool our kids, well, we don't homeschool our kids, whatever. And, and we would take our upbringing and all of our ideas and our biases, and then we go, be like me, God, Okay? And that is what we call eisegesis, okay? Not exegesis. Exit is we pull it out. Exit, we pull it out, okay? Isa is we push in our own ideas. Eisegesis. Be like me, Jesus. Guys, eisegesis. Think of Isis. It's dangerous, okay? It's dangerous. 
Alan Johnson wrote a book called History and Culture in New Testament Interpretation. And he wrote, if we fail to give attention to these matters of culture, then we may be guilty of eisegesis, reading into the Bible our Western 21st century ideas. Context concern forces us away from our private meanings back into the framework of the author so that we can know what it was really meant to say. Eisegesis is what J.I. Packer calls evangelical cigarettes. Okay? He says it's when I strip a verse out of its context, drag on it for a while, it makes me feel good, and I use it in a way that the Bible never meant it to be used. How often do we do that? I'll tell you, it is so normal. It's so normal. And we come here and we come to a prayer meeting and, and we just, you know, hey, the Bible says we're two or more gathered together in his name. There he is in the midst of us. Amen, brother? Amen. But the context of that is during church discipline periods when it's really difficult and you have to give an erring brother over to the wicked one, to Satan, for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved. Jesus wants you to know that is very hard and I am there with you in the midst of it when it happens. Did you ever know that that's what that was talking about? No, we think it's just like, hey, if there's two of us, then Jesus is here. And if there's only one of us, he's not here. <laughs> Never be by yourself. It's terrifying. Okay. What about the prayer, you know, the, the scriptures that say, ask anything in my name and I'll do it. You know, ask anything and I'll do it. I want a Ferrari. I asked, what's up? You know, and so we look at the context of these verses and these verses that Jesus says, if you ask a mountain or command a mountain to be moved, it will be moved. This and that, and all these incredible, stirs up faith, doesn't it? Stirs up prayers. All of it is in the context of making disciples in this world. None of it has to do with you just being happy and rich and living in luxury and looking like a total, you know, stallion prancing through town in your giant, you know, Mercedes or whatever. Okay? We strip things out of context and we drag on them so they make us feel good and they justify the purchase of that thing or going there or whatever it might be. When, if you read the context, it never was meant to be used that way. It's very dangerous. Churches are being led astray and we so easily can too. So we, this is our method. Every Sunday, this is what happens. I go through all this stuff in my studying so that I can, by the grace of God, bring you truth. And have our lives conform to the image of Christ as laid out in scripture. Okay. Eisegesis can warp our worldview on issues all across the board. Whether it be fornication, homosexuality, gender roles in the home and ministry. The use of spiritual gifts, end time eschatology. It doesn't matter what it is. We want to be so careful not to be guilty of eisegesis. Now, Matthew and James in our text today... Just reading those verses, it would seem that they explicitly forbid the swearing of oaths, carte de blanche. Am I right? Don't ever make a promise. That's what I would get out of just reading it one time and closing it and saying, thank you for my quiet time today, Lord. That's what I would get out of it. Isn't that what you would get out of it? It's so true. It raises a host of interpretive questions where we need to ask ourselves, is this prohibition intended to be interpreted absolutely and universal for all believers at all time throughout history that they are to never make promises or vows then we need to ask ourselves are contracts commitments and covenants 
in which a party is formally bound to fulfill an obligation universally forbidden by Jesus? Are all formal agreements beyond a simple verbal yes or no prohibited by God? In order to answer these questions, we must carefully study the scriptures. As it is likely that Jesus' teaching in Matthew was the foundation for James' letter in chapter 5, verse 12, and these instructions that he gives, we're going to restrict most of our study today on Matthew's passage, chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And just as it is with any other passage of interpretation, the same is true for Matthew 5.33 and James 5.12. Context is king. Let's say it together. Context is king. So, in order to interpret this passage, we will look and examine the historical context by asking what was occurring during the time and place this passage or event was written. Then we'll look at the literary context by examining the preceding and proceeding passages We're going to look at the grammatical context, do some vocab work today, looking at certain words and phrases. I know you're excited for that. And we're going to look at the biblical context, checking out what we believe on the whole of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. And if our interpretation seems to contradict another passage of the Bible, we know that we've interpreted at least one of the passages improperly. So let's start with historical context. Historical context refers to the particular sphere of time, the place, and the circumstances by which a passage was written. Okay? Occasionally, historical context actually leads the interpreter to look beyond and beneath a cultural symbol to a supracultural truth. For instance, you have the, greeting, uh, the concept of greetings and hospitality that are timeless throughout the age, right? But there's a particular form of greeting called the holy kiss that is simply cultural for Paul's day or perhaps another part of this world. So we must greet others and show them love and hospitality. That's throughout the scripture. But we're not obligated to physically kiss them even though the Bible contains commands to do so in the New Testament. In some cultures, to go out and kiss somebody is strongly offensive. That may be this culture. I haven't quite felt you guys out on that yet. I'm getting a vibe that it is not welcome here. Okay. So, what is happening in the historical context of this passage? Matthew 23, 16 through 22, is insightful to read. It says, Jesus is rebuking and condemning the religious hypocrites. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So from this passage, we see in the context of Jesus' life and teachings, certain religious teachers of the first century legitimized the practice of failing to perform an oath through the crafting of legal loopholes. According to Christ, 
the religious leaders of the day developed an elaborate system of determining whether or not an oath was valid or binding. The Pharisees, these religious hypocrites, deceitfully decided that the name or object or thing that a person invokes while taking the pledge determines whether or not the person must follow through on the oath or vow. So, if you swear by my grandmother's grave, you have to fulfill your vow, but if you instead say, by great Odin's beard, you can disregard your oath. Such word games were opposed by Jesus as they revealed that there was nothing more than dishonesty in the way these promises and vows were being made. That's the history behind these passages that we've read today. Now let's look at immediate context. In interpreting Matthew 5.33, we need to examine the passages before and after it. Since the passage is all a part of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, we can study the sermon in one cohesive literary unit, okay? The Bible's not that hard to understand. You just got to follow the rules of literature, okay? As we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, this summer in Pioneer Park, do you remember this last summer? Now it's a new summer, right? Last summer, we looked at Matthew chapter 5, and then on Wednesday nights in the summertime here, we looked at Matthew chapter 6 and studied the Sermon on the Mount. We saw one consistent theme throughout it. When Jesus taught on a variety of issues like anger, lust, divorce, oaths, personal relationships, and the way we treat our enemies, he turns our attention to the Mosaic law and clarifies the heart behind the law of Moses. Jesus never intended to set aside or abolish the law of Moses. He says that in Matthew 5, 17. But rather, he wanted to correct abuse and misunderstanding. In this case, the law made provision for certain oaths and promises to be made. And Jesus' prohibition should be read in light of this reality. The understanding of this might lead us to consider that oaths in general are not being forbidden here, but rather a particular type, form, or use of an oath. Matthew and James both use the words, do not take an oath or do not swear. They are translations of the same Greek word, omnuo. Okay, so we want to look at vocabulary, look at words and what they meant. It's formed from a basic meaning, which means to grasp a sacred object. The type of oath or swearing to which Matthew and James refer is not similar to our modern understanding of oaths. Modern oaths do not involve the invocation of God or gods, except insofar as to omit our complete powerlessness to fulfill the vow without his help. So when we're standing there on the stand and we put our left hand on the, is it right hand, left hand on the Bible? I did it last year, but I don't remember. I won't tell you why, okay? Okay, you're going like this, that is not helpful. But anyways, right hand in the air, left hand on the Bible. Okay, seems like you're desecrating the Bible with your left hand, but that's okay. That's Nepal culture, no, I'm joking. Uh, so you are there and you're saying, so help me God, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to be asked some serious questions about this person or this company and it could send all these people to jail. What if I don't remember right? Oh my goodness, but I'm under oath. Lord, help me. Lord, help me that everything I say would be truth. Additionally, we recognize that both Matthew and James immediately qualify their forbidden oaths with the phrase, 
either by. So if you have your Bibles open, underline right now that phrase, either by, because that qualifies the prohibition of the oath. In light of this recognition, it is difficult to make the case that these passages universally and absolutely prohibit oaths. Instead, the oath that is prohibited is the type that directly links the responsibility with the object by which the appeal is made. Like maybe you swore by heaven or earth or the throne of God or the temple. Rather than having the burden of this promise rest solely upon you and your responsibility. In effect, Christ teaches that an oath is valid regardless of the object invoked. So they're unnecessary. It's unnecessary to throw your grandma under the bus when you make the oath. Now let's look at the biblical context. Let's look at what the whole of scripture has to say concerning oath. First of all, what does the law that Jesus was referring to speak about taking oaths? In Exodus chapter 20 verse 7, during the Ten Commandments, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is not referencing God using, or excuse me, using God as a swear word. Rather, it's swearing by the name of God and not keeping it. It's when a person would say, I swear to God that I'll be there, and then they don't show up. Leviticus 19.12 expounds upon this. You shall not swear falsely by my name. Excuse me, you shall not bear, swear by my name falsely. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Or Numbers 32. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23.21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you've promised with your mouth. Okay, that's the, the law as we read it. But now we see from David during the Psalms that the taking of vows or oaths were considered a very serious thing. In Psalm 15, verse 1 and verse 4, we were just there last week, right? On Wednesday night Bible studies. We read, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle who may dwell in your holy hill? In other words, who goes to heaven, God? Verse 4 says at the very end of it, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. It doesn't say anyone who makes a promise will not go to heaven. Rather, it says people who make promises, and man, it's a tough one to keep, but they don't back out of it. They're honest to their word. We see in Psalm 50 verse 14 offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high or Psalm 66 13 and 14 I will go into your house with burnt offerings I will pay you my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble Psalm 76 11 make vows to the Lord your God and pay them Psalm 16 116 14 I will pay my vows to the Lord Psalm 119, 106, I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgment. Solomon said concerning vows, Ecclesiastes 5, 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. 
Solomon does not say, don't you ever, ever, ever make any vows to anybody ever at any time, no matter what. Okay? That's not what it says. It does go on to speak wisdom into our situations. It's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? You know, it's time to get real with you guys. Yesterday was a hard day for me. You know when you get in a car accident and it's your fault, and like the rest of the day you're like, I can't believe I did that. Nobody here? Me neither. (laughs) It was a question. Have you ever felt that way? We're having a yard sale right now, and it's been two days, and you know, what God's been doing in our church where we're like, man, we cannot be storing up stuff just to store it up and let it rot. Let's give it to the Lord. Let's sell it and give it to the kingdom. He's going to bring in more for us to sell, more, more, more. So we're having a yard sale. It's not that successful at the moment. We're just, but we're, you know, we're just like, get it out, Lord, get it out. And a man comes up and he says, you got any guns for sale? And I, I'm like, well, I, I wasn't planning on selling um, any guns, but maybe this is the Lord. And, you know, he has been convicting me that some of these guns, like, I haven't shot them in 15 years. And, you know, I'm like, let me go get them. Let me go get them. And I bring them out, a couple of these guns. And, you know, I'm looking at them. And they were my dad's before he passed away. And, you know, I'm, some memories are coming back. And you feel that, like, oh, and, you know, and just like, okay, Lord, like, it doesn't matter. I don't want to store up my treasures here on earth. And you guys know, right? And, <clears throat> I'm just kind of a little bit walking in faith at the moment. Like, I haven't done any research as to what these guns are worth. I know what they're worth to me, which is not much besides sentimental value. And so we get into that garage sale, let's decide to sell our guns thing, right? And I just end up, like, thinking of a number, and it was a very low number. And it happened to be the same number he was thinking of, so... I sold one of the guns. I decided to keep another one. In the, right at the end, my wife, the voice of reason in my life, an accountant who knows numbers and is like, let's look at numbers. She gets out her phone and she sees what my other gun is and she's like, whoa, buddy, I don't know what you're thinking. But, and, but by this point, I'd already agreed with this guy. Okay, we were at this, this moment. I hadn't shook in his, shaken his hand yet, but it was this, this, this has happened. You know, I don't even know if it was right or not. It's happened. And I just felt, I'm studying this passage for today's teaching, and I'm like, I said yes to this guy, that that's what I was thinking for a price too. And I hand it over to him, and I watch him walk away, and I get on my phone, and I lost possibly a couple thousand dollars on this gun, okay? And I wanted to throw up a little bit, okay? (laughs) And you know, I just, all day long, I'm just like, oh, what have I done? And you know what, though? The Lord was so comforting. The Lord was so comforting. And my dad wasn't talking to me beyond the grave, but I could almost hear what he would be saying from that side of eternity. Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You won't be needing that gun in eternity. It's a piece of wood with a piece of metal on the top of it. A couple thousand dollars is nothing for the Lord. He brought 20 G's into the church by the power of the Spirit in one day. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I kept worrying about it. And my wife said, you've got to let it go. You've got to let it go. And I'm still a little bit like, oh, you know. And so just a little word for you guys as you're selling those possessions for the kingdom of God and to bring relief to Nepal after the earthquake. 
it's okay to do a little bit of research on what those items might be worth and be good stewards of them. But for me, I'd been studying this and I was like, you know what? I opened up my mouth and I said yes to this man and I probably could have gotten out of it. I got, oh yeah, I probably could have, you know, but I was just convicted that, man, as a man of integrity, this is where it's gone so far. And so, I just got real with you guys. I hope you'll pray for me. Or give me another gun. (laughs) A newer one. It's not broken. Um, Jesus says in the text, swear not at all. Don't swear at all, he says. Now, Jesus named some of the various things and the, you know, the, the people swore by. Don't swear by heaven, earth, the temple, Jerusalem. Don't swear by your head. And the taking of the vows, the Jewish hypocrites taught that as long as you didn't mention the name of God, your oath was not binding. So you had to be careful when you swore. You could say, I swear by heaven. You just couldn't say by the God of heaven. Or I swear by the temple, you just can't say by the God of the temple. I swear by Jerusalem, don't say the city of God. Okay, you gotta, be, you gotta use those loopholes to get yourself out of it if it comes down to a tough crunch. But we find ourselves in those places when we're called to be a witness in a court trial or to sign our taxes or to sign the bottom of the covenant, uh, of, excuse me, this covenant or our marriage covenant is what I was getting at. That, that legal declaration that I committed to my wife. Are we to not swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? There are those who interpret it that way. The Anabaptists, by which the Amish and the Quakers and the Mennonites come from, the Quakers will not bind themselves with an oath, nor will they enlist uh, into the military service or participate in civil government. I don't believe that this is what the Lord is speaking of. We see in the New Testament that Paul swore by God. Romans 9.1, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.23, Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul, that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Galatians 1.20, Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.27, in the ESV version, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the churches. I just machine gunned you guys with a whole bunch of Paul promises, okay? Don't check out. In Acts chapter 22, Paul shaved his head in making a vow. Paul, the champion of grace, the one who combated legalism, that was his goal as he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, and yet you find him going to the hub of legalism in Jerusalem and shaving his head and paying his vows and that of four other men with him. Even God takes an oath. In Genesis twenty-two sixteen. he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing, Abraham, and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessings I will bless you, multiply I will bless you. Okay, so there's that whole Abrahamic covenant there. He swears, the Lord swears. Then we have the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 commenting on that Genesis verse. It says, when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And then it goes on to say, in verse 16 of Hebrews 6, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Isn't that interesting that God swore, he swore by himself. He couldn't swear by anything greater, so I'm just going to swear by myself. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us that 
to make a covenant and a promise to one another, it's the end of arguments. Okay? It's the end of disputes. So God confirmed his with an oath for 17 ends. Even Jesus himself, when he was on trial before the high priest and all of these false accusations were being made against him, Jesus did not respond until finally the high priest put him under oath. Matthew 26, 62, the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus had not spoke at all until he was put under oath. And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. It is as you say. So God the Father makes oaths and promises. Paul the Apostle makes oaths and promises. Jesus, the one who said, don't make oaths and promises, makes oaths and promises. Okay? David Guzik, he's a a pastor in the Calvary Chapel movement. He's well respected among Calvary guys. He said, some have taken the word of Jesus to be more than an emphasis on truth-telling and honesty and to be an absolute forbidding of all oaths. This is misguided because oaths are permitted under certain circumstances as long as they are not abused and used as a cover for deception. <clears throat> that this was meant, or excuse me, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown writes, that this was meant to condemn swearing of every kind and on every occasion as the society of friends and some other ultra-moralists allege is not for a moment to be thought. For even Jehovah is said once and again to have sworn by himself, and our Lord certainly answered upon oath to a question put to him by the high priest, and the apostle several times and in the most solemn language takes to wit- God to witness that he spoke and wrote the truth. And it is inconceivable that our Lord should here have quoted the precept about not forswearing ourselves, but performing to the Lord our oaths, only to give a precept of his own directly in the teeth of it. Evidently, it is swearing in common intercourse and in in frivolous occasion that is here met. Frivolous oaths were indeed severely condemned in the teaching of the time. That's why James says, above all, in our chapter 5, verse 12 today. He goes on to say, But so narrow was the circle of them that a man might swear, says Lightfoot, a hundred thousand times and yet not be guilty of vain swearing. Hardly anything was regarded as an oath if only the name of God were not in it. Excuse me, if the name of God were not in it. Just as among ourselves, as Trench well remarks, a certain lingering reverence for the name of God leads to cutting off portions of his name or uttering sounds nearly resembling it or substituting the name of some heathen deity in profane exclamation or asservations. Against all of this, our Lord now speaks decisively teaching his audience that every oath carries an appeal to God, whether named or not. And so here we come in a day in our church history where the first round of covenant membership forms are turned in. These considerations that we've talked about today lead me to conclude that the prohibitions of Matthew and James do not universally prohibit all covenants, commitments, and contracts. There are certain contra- uh, contexts in which formal Requiring a form, agreements are helpful and acceptable. For instance, when entering into the covenant of marriage, marriage, tradition is passed down to us various formal elements. There's a ceremony, there's charges and receiving of vows and rings, the marriage license. In the Old Testament, there's certain legal situations in which it might be appropriate to give a formal expression of honesty, like when you're in testimony of court. We also find it appropriate and helpful 
to enter into certain formal agreements for the sake of some purchases like loans. The principle of formal agreements reflects biblical patterns. In the times of the forefathers, a person would place his hand under the thigh of another person to signify an agreement. How many of you are glad that we don't do that anymore? Who wants to be a member of the church today? Put her there. By the time of the judges, the symbol of agreement was the removal and exchanging of a sandal. How many of you are glad that we're not doing that today? Everyone's walking out of the church like, I am committed. Step on a rock. God also uses different signs and symbols to affirm his covenant with men. The most common is the rainbow, or circumcision, or baptism, or the Lord's Supper. Modern contracts and covenants often appeal to a handshake, or a spitting on the hand, or a slicing of the fingers and becoming blood brothers, or a friendship bracelet, or your initials, or the checking of a little box on the website that says, I've read all of the fine print, which all of you have always done every time you've ever checked one of those boxes. These are all formal means of signs of agreements that are helpful, not ever to be used as a sign of deceit. The Christian is obligated to fulfill an oath or vow simply on the base of our agreement. Okay. With all of this having been said, what is it then that the leaders of this church have been calling this church to with this membership covenant? First of all, we are not calling you to abolish or replace the New Testament salvation covenant that was sealed with the blood of Jesus. This covenant is between you and Jesus on a vertical level. The new covenant with Christ Jesus has saved us into a community of believers on a global scale and down here on a local scale. The membership covenant here at this church is not on a vertical level, it's on a horizontal level between you and between me and between each other, all of us. It is in no way to take away from the free salvation that's found in Jesus' finished work on the cross. The church covenant affirms and encourages the vertical covenant and cannot even be entered into unless one has first been born again and entered into covenant with the Lord Jesus. What we're calling this church to is not taking on any type of oath that is invoked in a person, place, or thing like I swear on the life of my firstborn child like Rumpelstiltskin and Rapunzel. Right? Wasn't that that story? Like, I swear on my child, my first child. Nothing along those lines. In fact, that's what we're talking about today. Our church covenant is not a legalistic yoke that saves you, nor is it one that earns you a more righteous spot in the church or in the kingdom of heaven. It's not a way for the elders to tighten their hold on your neck and the neck of the people so that we could control you better. All throughout these years, nothing will have changed in our teaching of biblical leadership roles and how they're to function. There are defined roles in the New Testament, but the leadership is never to be dictatorial nor tyrannical, rather humble and service-oriented. What the church membership is, is not so much an oath, but a sealed agreement between all of us. And not just the elders to the members, but the members to fellow members. 
that we've been numbered with this local body, we understand the responsibilities of the local church and its leaders and its members, and that by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be faithful to these obligations. This is our yes being yes, as Jesus described. It's an affirmation of the vision, mission, and doctrinal declaration of the church. In all of this, we realize that we are still just men and women, and we will inevitably fall short with each other, but we will also bear with one another and forgive one another and encourage and exhort one another and keep pressing on on being discipled and making disciples by the power of the Spirit. This covenant membership is a tool gleaned from the implications of Scripture. It brings definition to who we are as a church, what we believe and what we're to be about. This tool helps us to effectively accomplish our vision statement. It helps those in the fringe to be brought into active participation and care of the local body. It's an agreement to contribute to the good of this body rather than merely consume from it. It clarifies the beliefs of those who name this as their church, especially as they grow in ministering the word of the Lord. It grants permission for exhortation and it welcomes accountability from my church family. It provides a safe environment for confession and repentance of sin. It recognizes individual giftings in people and gives them a place to be used for the edification of the body. It provides a launching uh, pad for global evangelism and sending. It brings clarity as to how and where to use the church's resources. It offers security in relationships as we've committed to one another. Look at 1 Samuel 18 with me. We see a covenant between David and Jonathan. When he finished saying these things, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, best friends till the end. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Why did these guys go into a covenant with one another? Because they loved each other. Because they loved each other. And you see it two chapters later in 1 Samuel 20. And you shall not only show me the kindness. This is Jonathan saying, David, you're going to make a covenant. I'm forcing you to. There's a forcing here going on. David, David, you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. David would fulfill this covenant in taking care of Mephibosheth, not because he had to, but because he got to, because he loved Jonathan. As we move forward in our church and, and with this new time of receiving membership forms, we have um, the covenant memberships back there above the tithe box. If you're just wondering what all of this is about, you're new here, grab one of those. And there's also one above the box out in the foyer. And it just basically lays out um, what we believe as a church as far as doctrine and theology. It lays out what our vision and our mission are, which you just got to hear all that for the last hour and a half, right? Uh, and it also lays out what the elders and pastors' responsibilities are for you guys. What we say, we will be here for you guys. God help us. We will be here for you guys in these ways. 
and then also for you guys and us all together. Okay, this isn't just a you guys to the elders. And this is all of us together in this together. Okay, and then at the end of it all, okay, at the end of it all, there's no little spot where you slice your finger and squish your blood into the paper. Okay. There's no spot where you sign away your firstborn child or draw a picture of your favorite Marvel comic character that you're going to swear by. Nothing like that, okay? At the end of this, so this is the membership form, and you get this after you take the class here with the church, okay? The membership form, basically, you'll get it. You'll fill out your address, your email address, your Facebook, Twitter handle, or whatever, you know, um, and your birthday so we can, you know, say happy birthday, right? Uh, Then you're going to have a chance to share your testimony, on here, how it was that you came to know Jesus. Then you're going to be able to just expound on the gospel. What, do you, what is the gospel? Okay? And you can just write down the gospel. Okay? Uh, and then what we have is a time where you can share. I think these are my spiritual gifts, and I don't really know how to use them in the church. Okay? Just share a little bit on there. Okay? It's really more checking of a box. And then finally, at the end of this uh, document, there's simple yes or no boxes. Okay? Uh, simple yes or no boxes like... I affirm Calvary Chapel of Crook County's vision statement. So you could look up there and be like, man, I think this is what God wants us to be about, and I'm about that. Check, okay? Uh, I affirm Calvary of Ch- uh, Chapel of Crook County's mission statement. Man, we read the book of Acts, we see how that's supposed to happen. Okay, I want to be about that. Uh, I affirm the statement of faith. All right, yeah, I, want, I believe what this church believes. Then we have uh, the theological distinctives of this church. That means... These are things that other churches might teach differently, but it's how we're going to teach it here. You know, we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Other Jesus-loving churches don't. You can still come here, and you might mark down here, I believe in everything, but I'm more of a mid-trib person, or I believe, I'm an amillennialist or something, and that's just, you know, but I'm, I'm willing to fellowship here and be a part of this and grow and learn and not be divisive and, and be teachable, and, you know, we'll all walk in humility together. Or I'm more of a cessationist. I don't believe the gifts are for today, but... Calvary Chapel of Crook County believes that the miraculous gifts are for today and in use today. Hey, we can all love Jesus together. We'll be sensitive and humble towards one another in acting in those things. Um, but I just want to make it clear. That's where I'm at. Okay, we're just making things clear here through all of this. And it's been amazing through this process that we've had people be like, I am not on any of these pages with you guys. I got to get out of here. And we never would have known. You know, we've had people who've led ministries in this church who've come up to us and said, I got to get out of here because I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I think there's a lot of different ways to him. And we're like, you've been leading ministry here. How have we not known that? Okay, so this is just something that says, hey, we believe in the core doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. Okay, uh, then we have down here, um, I affirm commitment to Calvary Chapel of Crook County's membership covenant. Yes or no? And then there is a place for a signature. Okay, and that's just simply, I'm the one who filled this out. I didn't have my... You know, my son fill out my testimony sheet for me. I did it myself, okay? Um, We have signatures on almost everything we do throughout the day in our lives. And this is just simply, I'm the one that agrees to this, okay? Uh, And that's it. You know, there's no big, huge, long oath or vow or you got to wear a special kind of underwear after we're done with you. Nothing like that, okay? We're just saying, this is what we are as a church. Let's move forward to expanding the kingdom of God, amen? Amen. Um, <clears throat> you know, guys, we're excited to be in this season because we understand that for a while, we've, for a while, there was a lot of talking about the membership. We had special nights of question and answer times. 
And I think we all were ready to just, let's just move on, all right? Let's just move on. Like, we don't want to just be about membership all the time. It's just like, you know, this is the first sermon that we've had on it in almost, what is it now, almost June. So it's been almost six months or more that we've had a sermon on it. And, uh, and so, you know, it's not something we just want to hammer you guys with all the time. Uh, we understand this is new to most of you and to a lot of you. This isn't Calvary Chapel-esque, if you will. Uh, although there's a, a few Calvaries that are in discussion over it right now and others that have done it. Uh, so it's a little off, you know, um, some of that. But, um, but it's the leading that the Lord's been leading us in. And we understand that some of you guys are just like, I don't know, it's okay. Okay, this is something that we feel like God says there's just going to be grace and there's just don't feel forced. You know, nothing like that. But, um, but we're just saying, hey, if you want to be in, let's go in together on this. And... Um, Nowhere, huh? I don't blame him. Um, I'll lead us. What do we got? What do we got up there? How great is our God? I don't know that one. No, I do. Let's go ahead and stand together. Um, and just to continue that thought very quickly, um, you know, there's grace for you that are new here. Maybe you'll want to come to the next membership class. It's been really cool. We've had people come up to us and say, I'm excited for the next membership class. And we're like, we never thought we'd hear that. You know, people that are excited. And so we're probably going to move our next membership class up to the middle of the summertime uh, so that we can get more people, you know, who are excited to be a part of what God's doing here. So uh, that's exciting. Just keep coming. Keep pressing in. Let's make disciples and be disciples. Amen. Lord God, we thank you, God, that you have saved us into a community of regenerated believers, Lord, that we have one another, Lord, that we are sheep of a flock underneath the chief shepherd. Lord, all of the pastors here, we just acknowledge that we are under shepherds, Lord, underneath your rule and authority. We are all members of the body individually, but we're underneath the head of Christ Jesus. And so we pray for humility, Lord, as, as there's a bit of a Jonathan and David thing going on where we are causing people to make a covenant with us. We're causing people. We, as leaders, are urging sheep that are saying, we are sheep here as shepherds, we're, we're urging people to, to come be about this. Uh, and so, Lord, we just pray that you would continue as a church to cloak us in grace and in humility and in love, Lord. Uh, for some people, that just it's their conviction that they could never sign anything in their entire life, Lord. I just pray you'd speak truth into that, Lord, where there's really truth in that. Um, and, Lord, where there's freedom to be able to make promises with one another for our good and for your glory, God. Uh, we pray we would have freedom to do that as well. Uh, we do declare how great is our God, Lord. How great is our God. You are wonderful. You are marvelous. And Lord, as we have taken communion from the communion table today, uh, Lord, we remember that covenant, that vertical covenant with Jesus to us, sealed in his blood, Lord, you know that we would never replace that. We would never want to replace that. That new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied of in Jeremiah 31, where you would give us new hearts and a new mind, that we could know you, God. We love you, Lord. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.